Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Now that the Canadian truckers' protest has come to a close, American truckers are coming together and heading to D.C. NTD covers the People's Convoy as American truckers rally for freedom. The White House is trying to send a message to Russia, allowing sanctions on the parent company of Nord Stream 2. Tensions continue to escalate and lawmakers are urging Biden to get approval before deploying any U.S. troops directly to Ukraine. Two prosecutors leading the inquiry into former President Trump suddenly resigning. Their criminal investigation led to tax fraud charges against the Trump Organization last year. The Biden administration plans to rename over 600 locations in multiple states. The place names contain a word the federal government now considers derogatory. But experts say the word has an innocent origin. New York City's mayor says he can't wait to lift the vaccine mandate for indoor settings. He promises big changes in the coming weeks. Now that the Canadian truckers' protest has drawn to a close, American truckers are planning to keep it going. Several U.S. convoys are scheduled to go to D.C. ahead of President Biden's State of the Union address. NTD's Jason Perry is in Southern California, where the People's Convoy kicked off today. A lot of people have asked why we're doing this, what's your reason behind it? And people want like a defined, clear answer. They think it's one, one issue, one thing. But the truth is, freedom. It's about my children. It's about my grand, future grandchildren. It's about our families. It's about our country. People can try to paint this any way they want. They're going to say this is a far right or far left, or this is a a, a partisan issue. But it's not. It's an American issue. I'd like you all to be peaceful. And I know you're already peaceful, but also if you see any trash or anything laying on these grounds, the boys up here in Atalanta open the stadium to us on no notice. Let's leave this place cleaner than we found it. I'm relying on all of you to do it. After everyone finished speaking on stage, we walked around and talked to some of the people here and see why they wanted to support the truckers. An, you know, an American just supporting our rights and um, you know, just supporting the men and women that are out there just uh, standing up and doing the things that I necessarily can't do. So this is my best way to support them. I'm sort of tired of the government feeling they know what's best for me. And if we do not stand up to it, it's a slippery slope. It becomes everything. Everyone in my family was born in Canada except me. I have 100 years of Canada in my blood. And what Canada is doing is disgusting. And I hope Trudeau gets kicked out soon. And I think we're starting to see the awakening around the whole entire globe of what these vaccine mandates, whether if you agree with them or not, people shouldn't be coerced or forced to do something that they don't want to. And they have the right to do that. We're seeing what's happening in Canada and things can get serious and ugly very quickly. And we don't want that to happen. We know we're gonna remain peaceful and calm. And yeah, we just send out our prayers to them, most importantly, to them and their families. And when they get to DC, may everything just go smoothly and may this wake up more and more people along the way. We also found one trucker here who is not going on the convoy. He was just off today. He shared with us what it feels like to be a trucker and the unity that they have. So you bring a bunch of people together in a positive, supportive way, um, that love and support, and, and here's what happens. And this is the outcome of it. And it's going to continue to keep going and, until we get what we're supposed to have, which is our rights. You'd be surprised. It's not just the truckers out there. It's, it's almost every organization. Anytime you, you, you put that uniform on and you go out there and you do what's expected, um, it builds that 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 trust, that loyalty, and uh, becomes a band of brothers, you know. And so, I'm just glad to be able to share that, so other people will see what this is all about and what that band of brothers does, you know. And it's it's just um, in the long run, it just you know you're able to uh, show strength, unity, and love, and honor and respect. 
Now that the rally is over, everyone is lined up in a convoy on their way to Arizona. The trucks are gonna be in the front of the convoy, followed by RVs and trailers, and then behind them will be four-wheelers, is what they call regular cars. And as you can see, they're all heading that way now. Next stop is Arizona. Jason Perry, NTD News, California. In response to the trucker convoys, the Pentagon will deploy 700 National Guard members to Washington, D.C. And Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has approved the request from the D.C. government and the U.S. Capitol Police. The troops will be helping with traffic control during demonstrations in the coming days, and they will not be carrying firearms. Truckers are planning separate convoys across the U.S., inspired by recent trucker protests in Canada. Some convoys are scheduled to arrive in D.C. around the time of President Biden's State of the Union address on March 1st. And one group organizer told Fox News that they have plans to block off the Beltway around D.C. at some point this week. We'll be keeping an eye on that. And in Canada, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is dropping the Emergencies Act just two days after Canadian lawmakers voted to uphold it. Police have cleared out the protests in Ottawa after arresting close to 200 people over the weekend. And there are no more border blockades. Trudeau now says the situation is no longer an emergency. And the White House is taking steps to crack down on Russia. President Biden is allowing sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. With tensions escalating, Ukraine is now in a state of emergency and lawmakers on Capitol Hill are urging Biden to get their approval before sending U.S. troops to Ukraine. NTD's Melina Weiskup has the latest. The next round of White House sanctions is targeting Nord Stream 2, a natural gas pipeline from Russia to Germany. Today, Biden announced he's imposing sanctions on the pipeline's parent company and its CEOs. This is an $11 billion prize investment that is now a hunk of steel uh, sitting at the bottom of the sea. This directly reverses Biden's previous policy. Last year, Biden got rid of the sanctions on the pipeline because he feared it would damage the U.S.-Germany relations. But now that Germany has taken actions to stop the pipeline, the White House likely feels more comfortable to do so. What the Germans did yesterday uh, was to ensure that the pipeline is no longer part of the equation. But some Americans have said the U.S. should be more focused on domestic issues rather than foreign affairs. A new poll from Associated Press reveals that just 26% of people want the U.S. to play a major role in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. 52% want the U.S. to play a minor role and 20% want hands off completely. Ukraine is now in a state of emergency, and President Zelensky has drafted veterans back into the military. Ukraine needs clear and precise security guarantees immediately. They are self-defending. The U.S. is not obligated to send troops to defend them, and lawmakers are reminding Biden that he cannot do so without their approval first. We want to make sure that that uh, war, the war powers uh, act is, is complied with. The 43 members acknowledge that Biden has not stationed troops in Ukraine. But the lawmakers ask that if the ongoing situation compels Biden to consider it, the American people deserve to have a say before we become involved in yet another foreign conflict. And this letter drew signatures from members from the far left and the far right of Congress. They're reminding President Biden that should the situation in Ukraine become hostile, he must withdraw those troops that are currently deployed in Europe. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. But one expert says that Biden's latest sanctions on Russia may not be enough to deter Moscow. NTD's Arlene Richards has that interview. President Biden's sanctions target Russia's banks, sovereign debt, and now even the company behind the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Yet Scott Eulinger, a retired CIA station chief, says Russia has already learned to live with sanctions over the last seven years. Their economy has kind of made the adjustment and is less susceptible to damaging sanctions because they're more independent. And so that, that has to be considered. Um, although sanctions can be, should be pursued, I'm not sure how useful they will be in the end. According to Eulinger, Russia shielded itself from sanctions by not using dollars in bilateral economic relations. But there is another way to hit Putin where it hurts. Um, one thing that, the, that uh, Biden is able to do is they can also look at personal sanctions levied against Putin himself. 
Eulinger says the White House should prevent heads of state and even their children from traveling to the U.S. And so now you're hitting them where they live because they can't send their kid because they don't want their kid going to the University of Moscow. They want their kid going to Cambridge. And now if they're not able to send a kid to Cambridge, that is actually exacting a real cost to the actual decision makers rather than the Russian people who arguably have little say in what is going on right now. In the coming days, U.S. officials are continuing to watch for new Russian steps against Ukraine. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. After Vladimir Putin recognized the so-called Lugansk and Donetsk People's Republics, Ukrainian authorities are preparing for a possible full-scale attack by Russia. They're ready to call on 36,000 reservists. NTD's Anna Varava is on the ground in Kiev, where she asks Ukrainians what they think about the situation. Tension between Russia and Ukraine is growing as more Russian troops are moving towards Ukrainian border. Kyiv announced public emergency. And let's learn what Ukrainians are thinking on what's going on. It is very difficult to say something because there is a lot of information and no one knows what to believe. We hope for the best, but we are preparing for any possible options. First of all, psychologically tune into the development of any events that may develop completely unexpectedly. So the main thing is not to panic and hope for the best. I don't think it will end like that, but we hope that in any case everything will be fine. We work, do our jobs, pay taxes. We are afraid. We have prepared our documents. I think that Russia will not attack us. They will be afraid. It's just a provocation. I'm not afraid of anything. If I have to go to war, I will pick up a machine gun and go to fight. You know, I don't know what will happen next, because no one can say what is in Putin's head, but my son is preparing to fight, and I'm very worried about that. It seems to me that Putin will not go further, but even what is happening now is worrying. Everyone is worried now, everyone is worried, but I don't think there will be a full-scale offensive. I don't think they will reach Kiev for sure. Our guys will defend the country to the end. The main thing is not to panic. I talk to the children about where we will meet in any case, where the bomb shelters are located. Russia will probably go to Ukraine, but I don't think many people understand the consequences of it. Not only will there be heavy casualties, but the destruction of Russia will begin. In the Western world, many people have lost their temper and have seen who Putin really is and who Russia is. And even some Russians tell Putin he is a criminal. Two prosecutors leading the criminal investigation into former President Trump are resigning. They were working for the Manhattan District Attorney, but now the future of the case is up in the air. The two prosecutors resigned today. They started with the probe under the former district attorney, Cyrus Vance Jr. The current district attorney, Alvin Bragg's office, says they are grateful for their service but refuse to give further comments. The New York Times says the two prosecutors quit after the district attorney raised doubts about pursuing a case against Trump. Last July, their investigations led to tax fraud charges against Trump's company, the Trump Organization, and its longtime finance chief. Both have pleaded not guilty. And hundreds of locations, rivers, canyons, mountains, and a lot more could be renamed. That's because their historical names include a word that some Native Americans find offensive. NTD's Miguel Moreno has that story. Interior Secretary Deb Holland says words matter, so she plans to rename over 600 locations that have historical names that include squaw, a word that Holland formally declared derogatory in November. The federal government has published a list of potential names for the mountains, rivers, and other sites that it plans to rename. Some say squaw is used to degrade indigenous women. Others say it's racist. It's quite true that now, at least for indigenous people, it's a real trigger in English. Marianne Mithun is a professor of American Indian linguistics at UC Santa Barbara. When did the word become offensive? Oh, well, that we can't know for sure. But um, so basically in the Northeast, 
um, of North America, there are two main language families, groups of languages. The ones um, in the extreme Northeast were all Algonquian. That's a family. That family goes all the way across North America. So the first people that English speakers met would have been Algonquian speakers. And that word, squaw, was the basic word for woman, also word for female. In the 1600s, squaw was used in a Bible printed in the Algonquian language of Massachusetts. In the Massachusetts language, which was the language of the easternmost Massachusetts, it actually has the narrow meaning of, of young unmarried woman. Smithsonian senior linguist Ives Goddard also couldn't determine when the word became offensive. Mithune says English speakers eventually used squaw in a derogatory way. Anthropology professor Marge Bruchak has suggested reclaiming the term, saying that people should understand how culture, history, and language have been misrepresented. The Associated Press reports that the U.S. has taken action to eliminate derogatory terms related to black and Japanese people in the past. Miguel Moreno, NTD News. Alabama is one step closer to banning transgender bathrooms at schools. The State House of Representatives passed a bill yesterday requiring students to use bathrooms that match their original sex on their birth certificate. The bill applies to K-12 schools. Supporters say it would protect girls' privacy and safety. While critics say it targets transgender students. Alabama House members approved at 74 to 24, and it now heads to the state Senate. Meanwhile, in Indiana, lawmakers are also advancing a bill dealing with transgender issues in schools. A bill that would ban transgender athletes from girls' sports is on the fast track to passing. It could pass the full Senate as soon as tomorrow. After that, it would head to the governor's desk. Indiana's governor has not said whether he'll approve it or not. And coming up, trouble at America's largest department store shoplifter with a loaded gun. What can be done to prevent such cases? And the newest Olympic sport is the single-person bobsled, or monobob. The gold medal winner this year shares her journey from Canada to the United States. That and more here on NTD News. New York City's Mayor Eric Adams says he can't wait to lift the vaccine mandate for indoor settings. That was his answer today after being asked what he thought about it. Yes, and I can't wait to get it done. Uh, uh, I think that I take my hat off to New Yorkers through masks, through vaccines, through social distancing. Uh, but I look forward to the next few weeks of uh, going to a real transformation that I don't have to wonder what you look like. I would know what you look like again. But the mayor says he doesn't want to get ahead of himself. He says he meets with health experts daily and looks forward to what he calls a real transformation in COVID-19 related policies in the coming weeks, as long as cases continue to drop. Adams also stressed that the experts agree that the city cannot close down again. And shoplifting is an all-too-hot topic in cities like San Francisco and New York. Now the latest case involving America's largest department store and a loaded gun is making headlines. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more from Manhattan. A 21-year-old man was detained by security after stealing from Macy's flagship store on Tuesday. Police arrived shortly after and found a loaded handgun in his bag. Thousands of people visit America's largest department store every single day. They should beef up their security, which I mean metal detectors. A Macy's employee told me off camera that she and her colleagues experience dangerous incidents on a regular basis. She says employees are afraid of working there. Tuesday's suspect was charged with criminal possession of a weapon, burglary and petit larceny. And I hope they got brought to justice and they're hopefully in jail now. But the 21-year-old might not go to jail. Just last month, he was arrested and charged with grand larceny from a different department store. We spoke with Avi Kaner, co-owner of Morton Williams Supermarkets. He says one of his managers was robbed at knife point over some steak earlier this year. I've been in business for 25 years as the co-owner of, of the supermarket chain. I've never seen this level of theft. 
According to him, the city is at fault for the rise in theft. The city has told thieves, this is an entitlement. You are allowed to go in and steal. We will not do anything to you. Mayor Eric Adams is currently trying to change New York City's bail laws, but Albany lawmakers want to keep current rules in place. Arian Pastar, NTD News, New York. Today, off the coast of New York and New Jersey, the largest ever sale of offshore wind development rights kicked off in an area covering nearly half a million acres. This report produced by Jillian Kitchener. A massive area miles off the coast of New York and New Jersey is the site of the biggest ever auction of its kind. Up for grabs? The right to harness the power of the wind. Ed Potasnik is executive director of the New Jersey League of Conservation Voters. He sees enormous potential in an area covering nearly half a million acres of water. The governor has a goal of 7,500 megawatts from offshore wind, and that's enough wind to power millions of homes. Um, that's a big deal in a state with about 9 million people. And I'm assuming that our goals will continue to increase when we see the success of projects um, that are done responsibly to deliver offshore wind back on land for our homes and businesses to be powered. Um, we, we think it's uh, not just necessary, um, it's an integral part of our economy. But not everyone is on board with the plan. Greg Kudnick is owner of a fishing charter boat business in New Jersey and worries about what thousands of wind turbines will do to the ocean habitat. I mean, we're going to have turbines from Maine to North Carolina. What is it going to solve? Um, and that's really what I would like to hear as, as a really quick, easy answer or as a long-winded report. I'm open. I'm all ears. I love to read it and, and make me feel better. Uh, but for all this that's taking place and all this is put in jeopardy, to me, I don't see the net benefit. Residents in coastal communities are also concerned. In January, a group of New Jersey residents sued the agency holding the auction, worried about the aesthetic impacts of the turbines visible from the beach and potential lost tourism. For now, though, the auction presses ahead, marking a major step forward for bringing more offshore wind power to the United States. Could hydrogen-powered aircraft be the future? We ask this as Airbus just announced it'll test a hydrogen-powered A380 by the middle of this decade. And TD's Faye Quarter has more. Our plan is to take this aircraft and modify it into a hydrogen propulsion flight laboratory. Airbus is the first major aircraft maker to dive into hydrogen. It plans to test a hydrogen plane by the middle of this decade. The aircraft used for the flight demonstrator will be an Airbus A380 equipped with liquid hydrogen tanks that will supply the engine which is located along the rear fuselage of the aircraft. Hydrogen is better than conventional jet fuel in many ways. It's environmentally friendly, readily available, and lighter. However, hydrogen planes face two big challenges, fuel storage and fuel distribution. Typically in an aircraft, the fuel is stored in the wings and perhaps in, inside some portions of the fuselage. Um, but because hydrogen has to be stored in a compressed state to get enough of it on board, it's in a cylinder. And that cylinder won't fit in a wing and it's probably not um, practical to put it there. So you have to store it in the fuselage. David Naledi is a managing director at Riveron. Naledi says this is what Airbus will likely do with its A380. This may reduce the amount of people and cargo the plane can carry. And the second challenge is fuel distribution. It will require like a, um, potentially a, a pipeline, but more than likely um, some kind of uh, container, pressurized container, whether it's on a ship or on a, on a um, truck or a train uh, to move it in bulk. Naledi says hydrogen distribution will be a practical constraint and an engineering challenge the industry will face. Meanwhile, Airbus's major rival Boeing is ignoring hydrogen and focusing on more sustainable jet fuels. Faye Quarter, NCD News. Kaylee Humphreys is the Olympics' first monobob champion. The former Canadian bobsled standout won her first American gold at this year's Winter Games, and she was showing off her hardware today. NTD's Dave Martin has more. With four smooth bobsled runs, American Kaylee Humphreys became the first ever Olympic monobob champion. The golds were not a first for Humphreys, though, as the former Canadian placed first at the Winter Games in the two-woman event in 2010 and 2014, while placing third in 2018. 
A conflict with Team Canada following the 2018 Games, though, opened the door to Humphrey's defection to the U.S., where her husband is from. On December 2nd, 2021, Humphreys officially became a U.S. citizen, completing a long, arduous process of starting over for a new country and finding new sponsors. Anybody that has started again understands fully what I mean, but I think overall it was, there was a lot that we had to get through in this four years, and two months ago, I wasn't a citizen and there was no guarantee I was going to be able to go to the games, let alone perform. But I had faith and believed and I had a lot of support from my community, from my family, from my friends. You know, the the city and the country has really rallied behind me and I think that's what allowed me and gave me that extra little bit once I got there. That extra little bit was enough to win Team USA one of their eight gold medals at this year's Winter Games. Dave Martin, NTD News. The NBA season is nearly three-fourths complete, but with Chris Paul's hand injury throwing a wrench into Phoenix's plans, the Western Conference could be up for grabs. NTD's Dave Martin breaks down the contenders out west. The Suns have a sizable six-and-a-half game lead with 24 to play, but with Paul out for six to eight weeks, it might not be enough. When Phoenix made a surprising run to the finals last year, it was the acquisition of Paul that was the biggest reason for the newfound success. Now with the NBA's best record, we'll see how much depth they have behind him. Golden State is still in second behind Phoenix, despite losing four of their last five games. Draymond Green's back injury is expected to keep him out until March, meaning the championship trio of Green, Steph Curry, and Klay Thompson will have to wait until then to finally play together, which will be the first time in nearly three years. 22-year-old point guard John Morant is quickly turning into a superstar and his play has turned the Grizzlies into a power in the West. Fresh off his first All-Star appearance, Morant is 6th in scoring and 14th in assists while providing highlight plays on a nightly basis as Memphis sits 8 games back of the Suns. The Jazz have made the playoffs five straight times but have yet to advance to the conference finals since 2007. But Utah's stars, three-time All-Star Donovan Mitchell and three-time Defensive Player of the Year Rudy Gobert are still under 30 and after a rough January have won six of seven heading into the break. Dallas sits fifth in the West but will likely need quite a performance from all-NBA guard Luka Doncic down the stretch to move up. The Mavs traded center Kristaps Porzingis two weeks ago, though it's difficult to see how they'll keep up without his production at center. Denver finds themselves just a game and a half behind Dallas with reigning MVP Nikola Jocic in line for more hardware this season. But the center will need help to advance in the postseason. Budding star Michael Porter Jr. has been out since November and his return will affect their chances in the playoffs. Finally, the Lakers. With LeBron James, Anthony Davis, Russell Westbrook, and Carmelo Anthony, L.A. has more star power than any other team. But they're old, have defensive limitations, and Westbrook has not been a good fit. If the ninth place Lakers are going to make a run in the playoffs, they're going to have to do it on the road, if they even make it that far. Dave Martin, NTD News, New York. Coming up, a video shows a mother who is with her two children being assaulted while waiting in a drive-thru. California police have arrested a highly active thief. Police say the suspect is responsible for over 50 cases of smash and grab theft. We'll have more shortly on NTD News. mother was at a McDonald's drive-thru with her two young sons when a lady started yelling and throwing objects at their car, accusing them of cutting in line. The attack that followed was all caught on camera. NTD's Jason Blair has more. In Richmond, California, a road rage incident was caught on camera showing a woman assaulting a mother who was in her car with her two young children at a McDonald's drive-thru. The mother started recording the incident on her phone as soon as things started to escalate. It got to the point where I couldn't ignore it anymore. She was really aggressive and she was she was screaming and yelling at me and I felt in danger. I, I really felt like I had nowhere to go or how to get out of there. The victim, who requested to go by only Amaru out of safety concerns, says the drive-through has two lines that eventually merge into one, and the suspect was accusing her of cutting. However, Amaru says she was just following the flow of the cars. I wasn't cutting. The lines were merging into one. 
In the video, the suspect can be seen yelling and hurling objects before getting back into her car and then proceeding to ram into Amaro's car. At that point, Amaro stopped recording and got out of her car okay, to get okay. the suspect's information. She says that's when things got worse and the suspect drove into her. Because my hands were up in the air, like stop, I was able to grab the, the hood of her car and um, she took off with me. My boys saw everything my boys saw when the car took me. The Richmond police say Amaro was dragged 150 feet across the parking lot. Then the suspect got out of the car, punching Amaro several times before driving off. Amaro says the suspect is not the owner of the vehicle that she was in, and the person who is is not cooperating with the authorities. The suspect is seen wearing scrubs in the video, so it's possible that she works at a nearby hospital. The Richmond police are asking people to contact them if they do recognize the woman. Jason Blair, NTD News, San Francisco. California police recently arrested a thief that had been targeting small businesses with smash-and-grab theft. Police say the thief is responsible for dozens of cases in the cities of San Jose and Milpitas. Here's that story. San Jose police arrested 43-year-old Andrew DeAnda, who is suspected of over 35 burglaries of commercial businesses in San Jose and at least 20 burglary cases in Milpitas. Police say he used the pattern of smashing the front windows of the businesses, taking the cash register and cash, and fleeing the scene, oftentimes in stolen vehicles. The San Jose and Mopitas Police Departments coordinated their investigation. On Monday, SJPD Special Operations Division officers located and arrested suspect Deanda at a residence on the 4500 block of Houndshaven Way in San Jose. Chief of Police Anthony Mata said in a statement, Our department will not give in and will continue combating and investigating these types of crimes. Deanda has been booked into the Santa Clara County Main Jail for 44 accounts of burglary, 9 counts of felony vandalism, grand theft, and additional misdemeanor charges. An accountant is charged with stealing $1.7 million from two car dealerships. According to the indictment, she allegedly wrote unauthorized checks to herself. We hear more from NTD's David Lamb. A former accountant for two car dealerships in Marin County has been charged with four counts of wire fraud, and this is according to the FBI and Department of Justice on Tuesday. According to a press release from the U.S. Attorney's Office, the defendant is a 54-year-old Christina Marcus. She was the bookkeeper for the dealerships from 2010 to 2018. Now, an indictment says that starting in 2014, Marcus allegedly wrote unauthorized checks to herself. She also wrote unauthorized bonuses and vacation pay. Now, she was using the company's software, and she allegedly was able to delete records and cover her trail. It's believed that she embezzled over $1.7 million by transferring funds from the company's bank accounts into her own personal accounts. The defendant, Marcus, made her first appearance on Tuesday at the San Francisco Federal Court. Now, the maximum penalty for this type of violation is up to 20 years in prison, including fines and restitution payment for all the losses incurred. The defendant's next scheduled court appearance is on April 20th. David Lamb, Entity News, California. Disney announced on Tuesday that Disneyland and Disney California Adventure are welcoming back their nighttime spectacular shows this spring. There will also be a new finale for the Main Street Electrical Parade. Here are the details. Disney fans should be on the lookout for the Main Street Electrical Parade, Fantasmic, World of Color, and Disneyland Forever Fireworks shows coming to the theme parks on April 22nd. For the 50th anniversary of the Main Street Electrical Parade, there will be an all-new float at the grand finale that celebrates the theme of togetherness. The inspiration comes from the original design of the parade floats and the iconic art style on It's a Small World. The seven-segment float stretches 118 feet and brings to life more than a dozen Walt Disney Animation Studios and Pixar Animation Studios films. Guests will be able to see floats like Encanto, Raya and the Last Dragon, Aladdin, The Princess and the Frog, and more. Fantasmic will be back to celebrate its 30th anniversary on May 28th, 
The musical and animated show that lights up on the waters of the rivers of America displays clips and images from movies such as Fantasia, The Jungle Book, and Pirates of the Caribbean. World of Color will return full-time to California Adventure along with its music, fog, and fire effects. The nighttime show displays beloved Disney and Pixar images accompanied by a water show. While the Disneyland Forever fireworks show is returning in April, it will only run from Friday through Sunday until returning nightly in the summer. Coming up, a biosecurity expert and former British Army officer says that behind closed doors, ministers consider a lab leak in Wuhan the most likely origin of COVID-19. And one expert is sounding the alarm on possible pedophilia and sex trafficking networks in France. That's after the apparent suicide of a man who was accused of supplying young girls to convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. Behind closed doors, UK officials consider a lab leak in Wuhan the most likely origin of COVID-19. At least, that's what a former commanding officer for the UK's Chemical, Biological and Nuclear Weapons Regiment told The Telegraph newspaper. The Prime Minister told lawmakers earlier this week that the government plans to update their biosecurity strategy. NTD's Jane Werrell brings us more. During his speech on the government's Living with COVID plan on Monday, the Prime Minister said the UK will update its biosecurity measures. We are refreshing our biosecurity strategy to protect the UK against natural zoonosis and accidental laboratory leaks, as well as the potential for biological threats emanating from state and non-state actors. The UK's revamp of its 2018 biosecurity strategy follows criticism from a parliamentary committee, which said there were profound shortcomings. Biosecurity expert and former British Army officer Hamish de Breton Gordon told the Telegraph newspaper that ministers consider the Wuhan lab leak theory the most likely origin of COVID-19, but behind closed doors. De Breton Gordon submitted evidence to the strategy and told the newspaper that he thinks the government's official view is that a lab leak is as likely as anything else to have caused the pandemic. In a report published earlier this year, he warned of potential bad actors spreading genetically engineered pathogens that are more dangerous than COVID. He called for the installation of biosurveillance systems to detect pathogens in the air. The World Health Organization is still investigating whether COVID leaked from a laboratory in Wuhan. Jane Worrell, NTD News. A new report finds that some academics are self-censoring to avoid offending students from authoritarian states. The survey conducted across a range of British institutions found that two-thirds of respondents say academic freedom is under threat in UK universities. While a majority of respondents state that the nationality of their students does not constrain class content, nearly a quarter said it does. This is more likely when students are from authoritarian states. Among scholars specialising in China, over 40% say they self-censored. And on average, 20% of respondents say that they self-censor. The paper, published in the International Journal of Human Rights, found online teaching during the pandemic made the issue more acute. 44% of respondents said that they self-censor when teaching online, while a 34% said they didn't. The 2020 survey was conducted with about 1,500 social science academics working in higher education providers throughout the UK. Students from China applying to study in the UK now outnumber those from Wales. Turning to France, we hear from a former military intelligence officer on the recent case of a Jeffrey Epstein associate who was found dead in his cell last week. He was accused of supplying young girls to the convicted sex offender. Yet the man's lawyer says the investigation into the case will stop. And it's raising concerns about the reach of pedophile networks in France. NTD's France correspondent David Vives has this report. The apparent suicide of close Epstein associate Jean-Luc Brunel leaves many questions about his connection to the American financier and convicted sex offender. 
the former boss of a famed French model agency, was found hanged in his cell in a Paris prison last week. He had been detained for over 12 months as he was investigated on suspicion of trafficking minors for sexual exploitation and the rape of minors. In filings in a federal court in New York, he was accused by one of Epstein's victims, Virginia Dufray, of offering modeling jobs to girls as young as 12 and taking them to the U.S. to, quote, farm them out to his friends, especially Epstein. Brunel was also accused of sexual assault by American models in a documentary released in 1988 named American Girls in Paris. He is acting as a matchmaker. He's got the agency, he's got the girls. His friends say, oh, Jean-Luc, I'd like to have... You know, I'd like to meet some girls, or we're having a party tonight. Can you bring some girls? Former military intelligence officer Alexandre Juvin-Brunet says this is not an isolated issue, and France and Belgium have problems with pedophile networks. According to data released by police in 2019, more than 50,000 minors disappear each year in France. Two-thirds of them are found within 72 hours of their disappearance, but Juvin-Brunet is concerned for the missing. Où est l'autre tiers? Where is the missing one-third? What are the networks that make that third? One-third of children who disappear maybe end up in prostitution networks or something else. So the two foreign countries. According to an association president, many are teenagers who leave their home and end up wandering. Some say there is a lack of interest from law enforcement on the matter. Juvin Brunet says his experience makes him believe in the existence of networks. The problem is not the isolated pedophiles. The problem is the networks that are being elaborated. There are brains behind it, and also financial support, logistics, influence, collusion that make these children disappear. Maybe we are talking here about white-collar crimes. I believe if French people knew what's happening, they would advocate for the return of the death penalty for those people. As for Jean-Luc Brunel, his lawyer says his death put an end to the investigation of his client in the Epstein case. And this means it's now less likely to establish the truth on the past of the French modeling agent. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Going to Italy, rising energy costs are straining elderly residents who live on a minimum social pension. Some say they have to choose between eating and paying their bills. Now, a new campaign in the city of Florence is asking fellow citizens to help shield seniors from spiking utility costs. Here's more from NTD's Eddie Aitken. The Italian city of Florence is asking people to adopt the utility bills of needy elderly residents to help them cope with rising energy costs. 95-year-old widower Luigi Boni was one of the first elderly residents to benefit from the new campaign. Bonnie says he was already struggling with constant pressure from his rent and bills, particularly with increasing energy prices. I can't cope anymore, so it's not a matter that I want to take advantage of anything. I can't take it anymore. I'm done. In a little bit, I'll have finished the money in the bank. He says he soon has to pick between eating or paying the rent. Steaks, meat, let's not even talk about it. I eat packaged food. I get by. I've become an expert in economic cooking. Bonnie says if he can't afford to pay the rent and his bills, he will soon need to go into a home. The Adopt-A-Bill campaign aims to help the over-65s who live alone on a minimum social pension. The campaign has so far raised about £30,000, with more than 200 donations coming from private citizens. The city came up with the idea after a record 55% increase in electricity costs and 42% in gas prices. To draw attention to the issue of rising energy costs, Florence plunged its historic city hall into darkness earlier this month. Florence is a city where you live well, and for this reason too, people live for very long. So we have a lot of people over the age of 65. We have over 30,000 people over 65 who live alone, and among these there is a significant number of people living on a very low income. Italian cities now face hundreds of millions in additional energy costs, and will have to choose between balancing budgets or cutting services. Premier Mario Draghi said Italy's government is determined to draw up broad measures that will provide relief to families and businesses. 
Eddie Aitken, NTD News. Still to come, a robot that can make cheese fondue on its own. A Swiss tech company will present this new invention at the Paris Agriculture Fair later this week. A sunflower crop could signal the future of farming. A farm in Australia is planting the sunflowers entirely by drone. All that and more in just a minute. Paris International Agriculture Fair will open on Saturday the 26th. And one of the inventions you can expect to see is a robot that can make its own fondue using wine and cheese. Let's take a look. A startup tech company in Switzerland called Workshop 4.0 will present its fondue-making robot called BooBot for the first time. The robot can remove the crust from a block of cheese and grate it into a pot. It then pours wine into the container, heats, stirs and seasons the mixture and dips morsels of bread on skewers into the fondue. The Swiss tech team made almost every part of the robot. These little skewers that we see in the video, they come from a 10-foot long bar that we cut and modified so it could do the work that we needed to do. This is what's extraordinary in this project. We don't have a product that was pre-made. We have something here that has never been done at this scale. And everything was invented. Everything was a challenge in truth. The project manager said it took close to nine months to create the pieces and code the robot's program. The team doesn't plan to sell or produce the robot on a larger scale. The idea of the project is to show that Switzerland can be close to its tradition, but also to technology. So the fact that we combine this to fondue or to raclette or to rubiclette, these are elements that easily make people talk and they are easily remembered. So it's good in terms of marketing. The robot is not entirely autonomous. The operator needs to intervene at some point to stop it from mixing the fondue because the robot can't see what it's doing. And the team says the most difficult part was building the cheese grippers. We are asking it to take cheeses that changes each time. It doesn't have the same size or the same shape, and it's never flat. So it's that part that was challenging to make organic and mechanic work together, to have something vague enough that the organic can be there. That was very hard because the robot is extremely precise. The company will transport the robot to Paris by bus. After the agricultural fair, the robot will also participate in the Swiss Fondue Festival, which will take place in November. A pterodactyl fossil dating back more than 170 million years is unveiled at the National Museum of Scotland. The prehistoric specimen is hailed as the best preserved skeleton of a pterosaur and the largest ever discovered from the Jurassic period. Experts describe it as the discovery of the century. This report comes from NTD's Joy Duguid. A pterodactyl fossil described as the discovery of the century has been unveiled at the National Museum of Scotland. The well-preserved skeleton of a pterosaur dates back to the Jurassic period, more than 170 million years ago, and is the largest ever discovered from that time. So one of those pterodactyls, those reptiles that were flying around back when the dinosaurs were living. It's a new species, we call it Yarkskianok, that's a Scottish Gaelic name and that pays homage to where it was found here in Scotland on the Isle of Skye. The pterodactyl had a wingspan of about eight feet. A forensic analysis of its bones indicates this particular specimen was not fully grown and could have had a 10-foot wingspan as an adult. Pterosaurs are some of the rarest vertebrates in the fossil record, owing to their fragile bones, with walls thinner than a sheet of paper. In the Jurassic period, Britain was closer to the equator and is believed to have existed as a series of smaller separate islands. The pterosaur is said to have lived alongside plant-eating and meat-eating dinosaurs, early mammals and marine reptiles. The skeleton was discovered in 2017, with the fossil jutting out after the tide had gone down. Joy Duguid, NTD News. A farm in Queensland, Australia is home to a special crop of flowers, the first ever sunflower crop planted completely by drone. The experiment is now in full bloom and it's drawing tourists in. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details.
This sunflower crop could signal the future of farming. This farm in Australia's Kambuya, Queensland, is planting the sunflowers entirely by drone. This sunflower crop, to the best of our knowledge, uh, is the first sunflower crop planted entirely by drone. Uh, so a big agricultural drone that we operate commercially uh, spread the seeds for this crop. The technique is already used for crops like barley, lucerne and wheat, but many were skeptical about whether it would work for sunflowers. Drone pilot Roger Woods explains the process took several attempts to get right. Sunflowers need to have fairly consistent spacing uh, to grow correctly and they also normally get incorporated quite accurately. So these were some of the challenges that we had to overcome whilst planting them by drone. And the result is stunning locals and tourists, providing a picture-perfect backdrop for photographers. Typically they are planted on the side of highways, which means people are often parking in dangerous situations or trespassing in some cases onto farmers' private property, which is why we decided to open the fields up so the public can walk right through the fields here, take beautiful photos. Farmers say the technique is less invasive than traditional planting methods by creating less soil disturbance, and they're hopeful other growers will soon adopt the technology. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.